อาละค่ะในช่วงต่อไปนะคะนำทุกท่านเข้าสู่ช่วงของ emerging market versus developed market แล้วนะคะเซสชันนี้สนับสนุนโดยทาง Wellington Management Wellington Management นะคะเป็นบริษัทที่เสนอความสามารถจัดการลงทุนแบบครบวงจรที่ครอบคลุมเกือบทุกส่วนของตลาดทุนทั่วโลกนะคะซึ่งธุรกิจหลักของบริษัทและภารกิจหลักของบริษัทนั้นก็คือบริหารจัดการการลงทุนเพื่อให้บรรลุเป้าหมายเกินกว่าที่ตั้งไว้สําหรับกลุ่มลูกค้าทั่วโลกนั่นเองนะคะและในช่วงต่อไปสปีกเกอร์ของเราก็พร้อมแล้วค่ะขอเสียงปรบมือต้อนรับ please welcome our next speaker Mr Philip Brooks managing director of Wellington Management to present on emerging market versus developed markets where to invest in times of heightened volatility so a big hand please ขอเสียงปรบมือด้วยค่ะ good afternoon everyone um, that was an enormous photo of me um, so I'm going to be talking today about developed markets versus emerging markets The opportunities that we see in both of those parts of the world, and in particular, some building opportunities that we see in markets where there's been some stress, some underperformance or price weakness in the recent period. So, as I commented earlier in the panel on disruption, we actually think that there are many more reasons to be optimistic about the world and about financial markets and investment opportunities today. And I'll talk you through the reasons for that, and the areas that we find most interesting. But before we get there, I want to start off with a few um, kind of questions to seek your thoughts on risks and opportunities in markets today. So, if we would be able to pull up the first question onto the screen. So, the first question: Looking ahead for the next. 12 months today, are you bullish on markets, neutral, or bearish? Do you think there's going to be an improvement in returns going forward, flat returns, or market weakness? That is really quite consistent with the thoughts of clients that I talk to around the world and here in Asia. So I would say that you know this kind of neutral, hmm, neutral to negative stance amongst investors today is really, really typical. Now again, we do not agree. I understand some of the drivers of those concerns. You know, it, we've been through a, a pretty significant sell-off in markets, particularly here in Asia in the recent period. But I'd say don't have your expectations be set by what has happened. Focus on the opportunities ahead of you. So we certainly are in that more bullish camp when we look at opportunities today. Right. If we could pivot to the next question, please. Question two. I can read it to you. <laughs> right. So, what are the risks that you're most worried about today? So, five choices here. Trade wars. Clearly, that's topical. A rapid rise in inflation. Another financial crisis, a China hard landing, or E. I have no major concerns. Yeah, we'll wait for those to settle down. But it certainly doesn't surprise me, at least in the initial voting, that it's those top three that are really featuring more heavily. 
So trade wars are definitely topical. A couple of our speakers today have touched on this, and I think I'm going to probably reinforce some of the messages that they have shared with you. But I'll leave that for you know, the right time in the presentation. Inflation is definitely something that we will touch on, and it's clearly, again, another topical point. We have seen a rapid rise in concerns, particularly about US inflation, just in the last two months. It's one of the reasons for market weakness. So definitely a, a valid concern, even if it's not one we share, and I'll tell you why we don't share it. And then the financial crisis, this is my favorite one, and indeed, I guess second favorite of the voting. Um, I think that what we have right now with the ongoing focus that we've seen this year and indeed really building in the last probably six months or so, so since kind of March of this year, it's been a building concern about you know when is the next financial crisis going to happen. What I think this is a symptom of is a psychological effect called anchoring. Now what anchoring is, is when a major event happens in our lives, we tend to grasp onto that event, and we tend to give it even more significance than it might really have. Now, why are we focusing collectively, financial markets around the world, focusing on financial crisis risk right now? Well, guess what? We're exactly 10 years from the global financial crisis. Now, 10 years means absolutely nothing. It does, like Financial crises don't come every 10 years. Why should we be worried about it right now? Well, it's simply human tendency. It's a 10-year anniversary. We tend to think in these nice round numbers. It doesn't mean that there's any significant risk of a financial crisis in the immediate future. Right, uh, and then, let me see, was that our third question? Bad memory, very sad, just let me double check. Oh no, one more. So, if we could pull up the final question, please. So, emerging markets versus developed markets, which do you think will perform better in 2019? So, developed markets, US, Europe, Japan, those are really the larger ones, or emerging markets. Emerging markets actually dominated by our region here in Asia. About 70% close to of global emerging market exposure is Asian-based companies. Well, I like it. Oh, voting's changing. Leaning towards, at least, leaning towards emerging markets outperforming. It was a quick rally there and developed. No, I, I think that's a really fair expectation. Now, what I would caveat here is market trends are hard to predict in the short term. We are increasingly bullish on opportunities in emerging markets, but I'd say we're bullish on a three-year, five-year, 10-year view, not on a short-term view. And we'll, we'll touch on some of the reasons why that bullishness, why that's in place, and some of the structural drivers for it as we go through the presentation. So with that, if we could bring up the presentation slides, please. Great, so that's the agenda, that's kind of the topic areas that we're going to run through today. Um, we are going to take a quick tour of financial markets. So where do we stand in valuations? Where do we stand in fundamentals? Where do we stand in opportunities? And where do we stand in risks? Um, please don't hesitate to, to think of questions as we go through, and I'll try and answer those either at the end of the session or over the course of the afternoon. So to start off with, 
there has been a lot of concern in the last few months around this idea that we're in a late-stage economic environment. And the reason for those concerns is, or like why that might make sense, is when you are in a late-stage environment, so growth has been really strong, generally you then, next stage, you go into a period of weakness in markets. And as that weakness occurs, typically markets correct and can correct quite meaningfully. But when we look at real economic data, there is no significant sign of late-stage risk developing. And indeed, region by region, economic performance is reasonably good today. Now, I do want to make an important point of context here. Reasonably good, in our view, is growth at around 15 to 2%. So positive, certainly not leaning towards recession, but nowhere near the kind of 4 to 5% consistent annual growth that the world tended to have before the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. So we're looking at a decent environment, certainly a consistent growth environment, no immediate cause for concern, but equally not a rapid growth environment. I think that the real reason people are worrying, or wondering at least, about this late-stage environment is that in the US market, this has been, since 2009, this has been the second longest period of uninterrupted economic growth in the last 80 years. So what this chart shows is over time, the length, so kind of from left to right, the length of these rallies or economic expansions rather in the US, and then the height of the line is the size of the economic value created. So the higher the line, the bigger, the stronger the economic expansion. And as we label here on this chart, we're here. This is the second weakest economic expansion in the US in the last 80 years. This is not looking like an economy that is overheating. This has been a really, really lackluster period of growth. The only thing it is, is long. And nine years, again, nine years on its own, is a meaningless idea in terms of how long an expansion should be. Just to give you a quick point of context on that, I'm Australian, and the Australian economy has been in a continuous economic growth phase for 28 years. Now, I'm not saying that that's sustainable forever, it's clearly not, but nine years in the US compared to 28 in Australia, nine's a relatively short expansion in terms of what other economies have demonstrated that they can do over time. So we don't think that the length of the expansion is important. Equally, when we look at the data, the data don't show that we're in a period of overheating in the US economy either. So we've got two charts here. The chart on the left is real average hourly earnings. In a period of strong expansion, in an overheating economy, your real wages are going up. That has not happened here. We've had consistent real wage declines in three or four years now. So it's actually showing weakness rather than strength. The inflation data on the right-hand side, the inflation data has been range-bound at the bottom 
or below the bottom of the Fed's band. Inflation has actually disappointed expectations much more typically than it's exceeded them. And just like that wage data, in the most recent period, so the last, I think, three or four now monthly inflation releases out of the US, inflation has been weakening, not accelerating. So I think the takeaway here is people like to worry about stuff. We like to think that there are concerns building around the corner. But the economic reality is actually things are looking really quite good today. Now, I would say, as other speakers have said, that fundamentals also need to be um, compared against valuations. And this is a chart that looks at those valuations. So we've got three lines on this chart. The dark blue line at the top, here on the far right, that's the US market. And that compares to developed markets outside the US in light blue and emerging markets in orange. We're definitely in a period where the US economy has been performing better, US companies have been performing better, and as a result, US valuations have been rising more rapidly than those in other markets. But outside the US, valuations are really very attractive. And actually, with the sell-off in markets this year, again, largely that's happened outside of the US, with that sell-off, Europe is now at the bottom of its long-term valuation range, and emerging markets are also back at the bottom of their long-term valuation range. These markets are really, really attractively valued today. The US is definitely more expensive. But even that, the US is not at the top of its long-term valuation range. The US was quite a lot more expensive again during the tech bubble. Now, this isn't a reason alone to be bullish on US equities, that it's, it's been more expensive before in the past. But I think what it is is a sign that we're not um, at necessarily immediate risk of a correction in the US. Rather, really, it's a sign that there's simply increasing opportunities in markets outside of the US because valuations are clearly more supportive there. That said, another kind of US chart, people have been talking for uh, really most of this year about this idea that this has been the strongest bull run, the strongest rally in US equities in history. And I mean, that's just factually incorrect. So what this chart shows is 120 years worth of data looking at bull markets in the dark blue, bear markets in the light blue in the US um, kind of history of the financial market. And this most recent bull run, so this one here, this is a squarely average rally. So in order for this rally to be the biggest rally in terms of stock market value creation in the history of the US, the biggest one so far was this one here, the current rally would need to double in size from here. In order for it to be the longest one, and again, people like to think about things in terms of duration, in order for it to be the longest rally, that's uh, this one here, it would need to run until 2023. 
So five more years of rallying or the market doubling from here in order for this to be really the strongest rally in the history of US equities. So again, not a reason on their own to buy US equities, but it simply puts this in longer term context that this is a really typical rally. This is basically bang on average in terms of the size of value creation and the length compared to the history of all the other rallies in the US market over 120 years. What I do think is more interesting than equity market valuations, and again, a point in my conversations when I talk with our clients all around the world, a point that I think is often overlooked, is that bond valuations, courtesy of government QE programs, quantitative easing programs, bond valuations are actually massively more expensive than equity valuations on a relative basis. So what this chart shows is the, in the dark blue, it's all US data, so it's US government 10-year treasuries, their valuation in dark blue, versus US equities in the light blue. Those two horizontal lines that run across, they are the long-term valuation levels, the average level for each of those asset classes. So if you look at the PE line for equities, so the light blue one, on a forward PE basis right there, the US market is trading at fair value. Now that might be surprising, but that is the data on a forward PE basis. US treasuries, massively above their long-term trend. Valuations there have been distorted, raised really, really high by government bond purchases in QE programs. So when we look at risk in markets today, we're actually much more concerned about risk in fixed income markets than we are in equity markets. But again, when I talk to clients, typically the biggest concern is on equity market risk and equity market valuation. So again, I think it's really important to understand the fundamentals of markets. And equities today, at least in our view, offer far more attractive opportunities relative to many other asset classes. So pivoting to a different theme and, and looking at opportunities more specifically that we find in markets, and this links back to the panel discussion earlier on innovation. Um, one of the things that I find sort of fascinating in the current environment, and I guess this is always kind of true, it's just the focuses change over time, but is right now, there's a really, really consistent focus around the world on the ideas of innovation and disruption. And I think that's right. There's a lot going on that is interesting that's driven by disruptive change. But I think what people are getting confused by is this idea, I think often held amongst people, that innovation is somehow new or disruptive change is somehow new. That's not the case at all. Humans over time have demonstrated time and time and time again that we're great at inventing stuff. We're a really, really innovative race. That's really good. Disruption isn't new. What is new is the pace of adoption. Now that has really important consequences for companies. What this chart shows is over time, the number of years it took each of these new technologies to reach kind of a, a quite a high level of market penetration, building their customer base. What we've defined that as is 25% of the population using that technology. So right down at the bottom, electricity. Electricity took 47 years to reach a quarter of the population. In the middle, television. Television took about 25 years 
to reach a quarter of the population. Mobile phones, about 13 years. The internet, about seven years. Pokemon Go, one month. Now, the reason that's important, again, from an investment perspective, is if a company can develop a new technology, introduce a new product, and build a customer base more rapidly, which is exactly what's going on, then their path to revenue, their path to profits, their path to cash flows for shareholders is shortened. So again, it's not that disruption is new. Disruption happens all the time, and it always has, and it probably always will. What is new is the opportunity for companies to profit more meaningfully and more rapidly from that innovation. And as we touched on earlier in the panel, those, whether it's healthcare, whether it's tech, whether it's a range of different industries, those are the companies that we find most compelling from an investment perspective. And as we highlight here on this page, we tend to think of disruption as being something that happens in the tech sector. So, you know, for example, the rise of Alibaba, which genuinely has been impressive. But very, very importantly, this isn't simply a tech phenomenon. This is happening in all aspects of the economy and of financial markets. So whether it's financial services, whether it's consumer businesses, whether it's healthcare, whether it's electricity generation, there is disruptive change in companies who are leaders in driving that change, who have huge business opportunities, revenue opportunities in front of them today. And those are the ones that we are most interested in in our portfolios, whether that's in developed markets or in emerging markets. So that's certainly a common theme in the positioning that we have in portfolios today. Um, I'll be brief here because a, a couple of the presenters have touched on this idea in prior sessions. But one of the things that I think is really interesting that is a new kind of disruptive area is the impact of e-commerce. And the reason I think it's interesting is I think for many investors, and perhaps frankly not so many of us here in this room who are actually based on the ground in Asia, I think we've seen this more directly in our lives, but many people in Western markets tend to think of e-commerce as being an American thing. So, you know, the internet was kind of launched in the US. Amazon was one of the first global internet businesses dominated in the US. And I think people kind of get confused that actually, you know, e-commerce might be more international or more global or even more tilted to emerging markets than it is US driven. What this chart shows, the top bit is the light blue line there is China, the dark blue line is the US, yellow is India. What percentage of total retail sales is in e-commerce? It's massively higher in China than it is in America, and it's growing materially faster. The US growth rate for e-commerce is actually, it's flatlined. It's, it's hardly positive at all. If you look at who the largest retailers are, and the names don't matter, but I can tell you who they are, in the US on the right-hand side, only one of the top seven retailers is an e-commerce player. That's Amazon. In China, you've got two, and they're by far the largest two retailers in China, who happen also to be e-commerce players, Alibaba and JD.com. E-commerce is an emerging markets phenomenon that the West is gradually, very, very slowly catching up to, not the other way around. The same is also true in electronic payments. 
So again, just a quick example of this one. On the left side, you've got the percentage of internet users in China who have made an electronic payment. So paid with their phone through Alipay or TenPay. In the dark blue, it's on the US. So massively more internet users in China and indeed in emerging markets in general are familiar with and frequently make electronic payments and in the West, it's a much lower number. On the right, this is dollars spent. So 2017 dollars spent on e-payments. In China, 13 trillion US dollars. That's a huge number. You might think that there's not a line here for the US. There is, it's just only barely above the zero line. In the US, it was about 150 billion. So e-payments in China are close to 100 times larger than e-payments in the US. Again, it's an emerging markets phenomenon. The other interesting thing about that, and we've touched on this again a couple of the presenters today, valuations are clearly important. But I think also understanding the underlying business drivers and opportunities are important in informing how to interpret those valuations. So here we show over time uh, retail revenue or share of retail revenue for a few different com companies. Alibaba is in the dark blue line. Amazon is this orange line here. So that's been growing really, really rapidly. People understand that. What I think people don't understand is this chart. In China, less than half of the population today is on the internet. So Alibaba is already, by multiple times, the world's largest e-commerce company by revenue, with a customer base that's only half penetrated. I mean, that's phenomenal. In the US, it's 90% of people have internet access, maybe it's more. So the opportunity for these names, including Alibaba, is huge. Another area of disruptive changes in robotics and automation, this is something that I'm more than happy to talk about with questions if you have any, but one of the interesting drivers here is in China, this is the far right-hand side, the, in fact, the far right of the far right-hand side, in China, robotic penetration is tiny, which makes sense to me because China has you know, the largest number of people in the world, 1.4 billion. But the adoption rate, the light blue line, the adoption rate of factory automation in China dwarfs the adoption rate of every other country or region. So China has been reliant on human capital to manufacture or produce goods and services, but it's pivoting very, very rapidly to automation and AI. There are winners and losers in that. But clearly, there are winners that we're interested in that are providers of AI-based services or robotics or the other component parts, sensors, et cetera, in that supply chain. Huge opportunities. Um, I wanted to wrap up with a couple of risks. The key one is trade wars, I think, today. Again, the financial crisis one, I think, is a red herring. Um, but trade wars are an interesting one. What this chart shows is Every single country in the world, so all 180 countries, there's a line for each one of them, and what percentage of their economic growth is driven by trade. So here on this side, you've got companies, sorry, countries that don't trade very much, they're not trade reliant. On the far right-hand side, you've got countries, including Thailand, that trade a lot, and trade is a really important driver of their growth. I know it's very, very hard to see. There's a red line here. 
that red line is the US. The US is one of the least trade-dependent nations globally. That's a really interesting point of context. Why would President Trump focus so much on trade when the US economy hardly relies on trade? I think it's a sign that it's not an economic policy, that it's really a politically focused policy. My favorite thing on this chart is this line here on the far left, so four to the left of the US, that's Sudan. Sudan has been labeled a state sponsor of terrorism by many different countries globally. And as a state sponsor of terrorism, there are all sorts of barriers put in place that forbid them from trading. And the US trades about as much as a country that's forbidden from trading. So again, it's not an economically motivated policy. The other interesting way to look at this is what the US imports and what it's levying tariffs on. So for China, right here, bottom left, the single largest export from China to the US is smartphones. And guess what? Smartphones are completely exempt from tariffs. So again, it's a sign that it's not an economically focused policy. For all of the other markets that the US imports from, these are highlighted in the blue, the key imports are cars or car parts. Guess what? Cars and car parts are completely exempt from the tariffs. So these are policies, in our view, that are designed to have a different effect, not an economic effect. I'll circle back to that in one second. What I would also highlight, these are China's trade balances over time. China used to be, 10 years ago, an export-driven economy. More than half of its GDP came from trade, from exports 10 years ago. Today, that shrunk meaningfully. 70% or so of China's GDP is driven domestically by consumption. So the US, if they were going to have a trade policy, it should have been put in place 10 years ago, not today. So what I think is driving this trade policy is politics. I came across this data about two weeks ago, and I thought it was just fascinating. So what this shows is over time during their presidencies, for Trump compared to Clinton compared to Obama, their level of popularity, their job approval rating. And what you can see is we are today, we're right here, 80 weeks into the Trump presidency. And at this point in his presidency, he is now today as popular as Clinton or Obama were during their, after their first 80 weeks. So I would argue that these trade policies have materially improved Trump's job approval rating. And really within that, it's not so much that Trump voters are anti-trade, few of them are, but they are somewhat anti-China. So it's the negative China sentiment that is really bolstering Trump's popularity with his voter base. There have also been real impacts on markets from these trade policies that we think are now increasingly understood and increasingly priced in. One of them, and clearly you know, we've seen it across emerging markets across the Asian region, one of the greatest impacts is on currency movements. When Trump first announced the tariffs back on the 1st of March, that's that dotted line, the dollar started to skyrocket versus its trading partners. More recently, the highlighted circle there, 
more recently, the last month or so, we've seen that peak, we've seen that start to taper off. We think that markets are now probably close to fully pricing in the real impact of tariffs. And that real impact is low because most of the important goods are excluded from tariffs. The other thing that's happened is it's created a, a significant buying opportunity, particularly in emerging markets. So what this chart shows, it's, a, it's about a month old now, so apologies for that, but what this shows is the performance year to date of different regions around the world. At the top, you've got the US. In the blue and the darker orange, you've got emerging markets in China, the offshore market. And in yellow, you've got the onshore market, China A shares. Emerging markets are down significantly. The A-share market in particular is down significantly. We believe there are great buying opportunities in those markets today. Again, focused on particular companies rather than you know, from a passive perspective, but nevertheless, great buying opportunities. The other impact that this trade uncertainty has had on markets is volatility. And we do think that a higher volatility level is now here to stay for the next few years. So do think about that when you're thinking about investments to make within your portfolios. Investing in things that might perhaps be better able to navigate periods of volatility in financial markets. So to wrap up, fundamentally, we are optimistic. The global economy is doing just fine. The things that people are worried about, in many cases, don't make significant rational sense. They're just a reflection that people like to worry about stuff. Nothing more. Increasingly, because of valuations, we see more and more opportunity outside the US. That's not to say there isn't opportunity in the US, there still is. But on a relative basis, there's more and more and more opportunity in non-US markets, and particularly in emerging markets. I'll leave my comments there. More than happy to take any questions that you might have, again, either now or over the course of the afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the Managing Director of Wellington Management, Mr. Philip Brooks.